Alberta's premier has put a pause on green energy projects and the left and the mainstream media, but I repeat myself, are losing their minds. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're watching The Gun Show. Today, the federal government released the draft clean electricity regulations. We will be doing detailed analysis in the months ahead. However, one thing is clear. The draft, or the draft regulations are unconstitutional, irresponsible, unrealistic, and would make life less affordable for Albertans and Canadians. They will not be implemented in our province, period. They can't. We are beginning our talks with the federal government, and if we can't get alignment, Alberta will chart its own path to ensure we have reliable and affordable electricity for the people we serve. This means making sure we have adequate natural gas baseload and incentivizing CCUS abated natural gas generation, small modular reactors, hydrogen, and a sustainable amount of wind, solar, and other renewables to drive down electricity costs. Albertans and our government care about responsible environmental stewardship. We are confident Alberta's plan will get us to a reliable and affordable carbon-neutral power grid by 2050. This is the direction Alberta is going. We invite the federal government to support us. Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith continues to impress me with her boldness and her ability to ignore the screaming and the crying and the gnashing of the teeth that continues to come from the left and the mainstream media when she does something that they don't like, which are things that are generally in the interest of everyday Albertans. In this case, she has put a pause on green energy projects until a thorough examination is done of the Alberta electrical grid and the end of life of these green energy projects because in oil and gas, you need to have a plan and a budget for the end of life of your project, but not so in green energy. They can just let these things run their course and then move on to the next thing. And it leaves Alberta taxpayers and Alberta landowners holding the bag. And then, you know, the impact on the grid. If you have a strong reliance on green energy and then the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, and there's no fossil fuel backup. What does that mean for Alberta? Rolling blackouts? Brownouts? We saw in Texas a few years ago what happened when there was too much green energy on the grid in an oil-rich place. Sound familiar? And a catastrophic weather event. In that case, a snowstorm hit the state. The power was out for days and people died. And so how do we stop that from happening here in Alberta? Our premier is trying to find out before she allows any more green energy projects to go forward. Great. Seems reasonable to normal people and not so the left. So joining me now to discuss this and several other things, including the Hawaiian wildfires, electric battery storage farms and the implications of what happens there if those things set on fire. And a few other things is my friend, Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. Take a listen.
So joining me now to talk about the overheated rhetoric around uh, Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith pausing renewables for a very short time, by the way, is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And Michelle does a really great job of cutting through the nonsense and the hyperbole and going straight to the facts. And, uh, you know, one of the things Michelle really does is tell us all to chill out (laughs) when the media tells us to panic. Michelle, what can you tell us about uh, Premier Smith's pause on renewables? Because if you listen to the left and the media, but I'm probably repeating myself there, uh, the sky's falling and uh, millions and gajillions of people are going to be unemployed. Uh, Well, it may be that some people will be unemployed, but I think it's probably better than Alberta going to blackout. And uh, that risk was very clearly laid out in the Alberta Electric System Operators um, 2022 Market Statistics Report, which came out in March of 2023. And in it, they noted that last fall, we had seven um, grid level three alerts. And that means that blackouts are imminent or that they're going to have to load shed from, uh, say, a large industrial user. Um, So those seven uh, blackouts, in every case, the collapse of wind was a key factor. And um, four of those happened in December when it was really, really cold. There was extreme cold all across the province. So a very high-risk situation. In fact, December 20th was one of them. Uh, So just imagine just before Christmas, you go to blackout and all the food in your fridge gets, uh, you know, unfrozen and everything else. And again, you know, people always think of a blackout as being, oh, you know, maybe one or two hours till they get things back up. Well, you know, it can be worse than that. Also, people should recognize when the system has to shed some load and go to one of the big industrial users and ask them to please um, be disconnected from the grid, they're paid uh, for that curtailment. Uh, They're paid many thousands of dollars for that. So on the upside, it does save us from going to blackout, but we still have to pay for it. Now, um, in the interim, I note that uh, about a thousand megawatts of, uh, we were short about a thousand megawatts of dispatchable power last year. So dispatchable power is like uh, natural gas. It's, it's the kind of power that you can turn up or down at will. Whereas wind and solar are entirely dependent on whether the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. So that's not dispatchable power. Anyway, we were short about a thousand megawatts last year, and uh, that's probably another factor in the near blackouts. Now I've seen online that we've since added almost a thousand megawatts, so that will bring us back into shape. But if we're planning to add more renewables, then once again, the system will be unstable. So I think the Premier did a good thing. Now, uh, there's something I learned from that in that I had no idea that there these green energy projects are going ahead without a plan for the end of life of the project. For me, I was sort of blindsided by this because in oil and gas, particularly in the oil sands, there has to be a plan in place for the end of life of the project with regard to reclamation and then managing the site going forward. There's And that's all in the approvals process of the project, as in a shovel cannot go into the ground unless there's a plan for this thing when construction is done and when the useful life of the project is over. There's none of that apparently 
happening in the green energy industry. So you, you, when you see the outrage from the environmentalist left, all we're asking them to do is do what we're expecting the oil industry to do and that the oil industry has already done for decades. That's right. And when you look at the reclamation in the oil industry, if you look at the oil sands, really we're cleaning up Mother Nature's spill. And you look at the wetlands that have been recreated, um, you know, they're beautiful, thriving wetlands. And the reason why there's like a 40-year certification process is so that people can't just drive up with some sod, you know, lay some sod and plug in a few trees and say, we're done. You know, it's got to be a thriving um, ecosystem that will survive on its own and be very similar to what was there at the beginning. With wind and solar, the problem is that, you know, many of the aspects of these uh, constructions are are quite toxic. Uh, Solar panels leach cadmium and lead. So you do not want them to be on prime agricultural land, maybe out in the special areas, you know, where there's very a limited opportunity for agriculture there. That might be a good area. It's also a very sunny area, but you don't want it on prime agricultural land. Um, and, you know, maybe it won't leach today, but it, as it gets damaged over time, that's when the, the layers start to uh, disintegrate. Um, and cadmium, there's an interesting story about Japan where they had some cadmium leach into agricultural soil and it uh, caused people to have itai itai which translates to ouch ouch but it's actually um, an internal uh, disastrous poisoning of the body uh, that cannot really be remediated so you don't want that on agricultural land Uh, the other thing with wind turbines there's a tremendous amount of um, concrete used in them. And we have one example from uh, Transalta. It's from quite a few years ago, the Taylor Wind Farm. It was only up for seven years. Then when they took it down, they uh, reclaimed the concrete, 60 tons of concrete from one wind farm. Um, And the way that they reclaimed it is they uh, sort of scattered it alongside one of their hydro facilities (laughs) as um, soil erosion control. So it didn't go in the landfill, so that's good. But, you know, how many places can we scatter 60 tons of concrete and and call it reclamation? Now, I understand there are ways to reclaim concrete, like you can grind it up and use it for aggregate or something. Some people have noted that on our Twitter feed. Great, but then let's have that written up in the um, approvals. Now, the other thing people should be aware of, you know, I mentioned that we now have another 1,000 megawatts on the grid. There are 23,000 megawatts of projects in the pipeline. So, you know, to keep the grid balanced, you have to have equivalent conventional power to go with the renewable power. That would mean we would have to build an additional 23,000 megawatts of conventional power. And a further issue is that, you know, a couple of the upcoming gas, uh, coal to gas conversions and small gas plants, you know, because of the way that the clean electricity standard is structured and stated, it's not clear if they would be approved. Uh, So, you know, you have people who are already spending a lot of time and money to switch over to gas only to now be told, well, hey, maybe not, or maybe you'll be penalized, or maybe now you have to add CCUS to this project, which will up the cost many billions of dollars. 
Um, and a- another thing that people are not aware of at all is that in the background, there's a group of senators called uh, um, the Climate Senators, Senators for Climate. So there are about 40, 50 senators, and they have a bill, I think it's S243. Uh, we have a short video about it on our website, but they they plan to cut off all financing for any project that has any relationship to fossil fuels. So, you know, you may the governments may say, oh, yes, we're going to grandfather in these gas plants, or, oh, yes, we would never shut you down entirely. Don't worry about it. You know, no problem. In the background, the senators are, are actively trying to cut off financing for any fossil fuel operation. And uh, these senators have, of course, all the ENGOs on board, a whole bunch of big investors on board. Um, you know, they've got lots and lots of very powerful supporters. So, uh, you know, we might be fooled into saying, oh, well, I guess it's going to be okay then, only to have this end run by the Senate, which is supposed to be the chamber of sober second thought. You know, as you say that, that, that's exactly what Mark Carney does for the United Nations, a former head of the Bank of Canada. That's what he does. He works to debank fossil fuel projects. And it yeah. looks like he has been in the ear of these senators who are, I guess, applying a social credit environmental score to these energy projects that are in the national interest. And if we think this can't happen, ask a convoyer. What happens when you have the wrong social credit score, according to the government? Right. And one more thing, we have to remember that uh, Catherine McKenna, who is working with the high-level expert group at the UN, um, and her report, Integrity Matters, their objective is to have no fossil fuels whatsoever. Not just that you can buy and trade, you know, cap and trade, that you could buy carbon credits to offset your emissions. Not just that you reduce it or that you reduce the intensity. Nada. Nothing. So, you know, this is like hyper craziness at the UN level. But she's also a very influential person. She won the, um, she was uh, awarded the uh, Légion d'honneur from France, the Legion of Honor. Uh, and why? Because she enacted French national carbon policy internationally, especially in Canada, right? That was the France-Canada Climate Culture Agreement of uh, 2015, I think. Wow. Now, just shifting gears, but also on the very same topic as we talk about end of life of green energy projects and what to do with these toxic sites when we're done. Um, one thing on the list of things we wanted to talk about was as they move away from fossil fuels or try to get us to move away from fossil fuels and shift to green energy, you end up with these massive battery farms. And these massive battery farms can be highly toxic and highly dangerous, particularly if a fire breaks out there, um, because you do need specialized firefighting to happen there. And again, this is I just want to apply the same standards we give to the uh, oil industry on green energy. So uh, many, uh, I think all uh, oil and gas installations, they have to have industrially trained firefighters on site. Um, Some of them are private. Some of them work directly for the company. But that's, again, not a standard set for green energy. Yeah, well, there's a a fellow, uh, 
don't remember his name actually, but he he he's a scientist in the states, and he's been involved in opposing various wind projects and battery projects down there, and he calls them uh, battery electric storage system bombs, because um, when these things start to light on fire, they go without stopping, and the worst thing is the emissions from them are extremely toxic. Hydrogen fluoride is something that basically can just rot you in a moment. Um, and he calls it using firemen as guinea pigs. So most of these battery electric storage facilities would be outside of major communities, but that means that rural firefighters, most of whom are volunteers and not that well equipped, would be the first responders and they would definitely be putting their lives seriously at risk. Um, and there's a peer-reviewed paper I think I sent you where they did an experiment in Europe testing out the emissions from these lithium-ion battery fires and uh, it's, it's pretty frightening. Um, and again, you know, that's not going to happen all the time, but it just has to happen once and uh, bad things happen. Um, you know, and these, these facilities are very large, like the Transalta one uh, at Pincher Creek. I think it's a, about the size of a soccer pitch. So, you know, when we were talking about the media outrage, I remember that uh, Jason Markasoff had a story in... Um, CBC, and he'd interviewed uh, Bino from Pamina Institute, who kind of blithely said, well, they can just add battery storage and, you know, no problem. <laughs> well, first of all, it's phenomenally expensive. Secondly, it has to be replaced every 10 years or millions oh. of dollars because the battery life is short, you know, when you're charging and discharging. And battery storage like that really doesn't cover anything more than a few minutes to a couple of hours. So you say, oh, well, let's then we'll buy a whole bunch of batteries and then we'll cover all the hours. Well, you know, people don't realize that um, power use varies on uh, like an hourly basis. And uh, Ken Gregory did an analysis for us, for the U.S. actually, and found that it would cost uh, uh, something like uh, $200 trillion dollars U.S. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I can send it to you, um, to have a, a wind-solar battery configuration that would power the U.S., which is more than the U.S. GDP. And that would be similar in Alberta. I think uh, one of our reports indicates it would be about $2 trillion to have sufficient uh, battery backup, because you can't have it just for two or three days or even a week. You need enough to cover reliably uh, a long period of time, which often can be 30, 40 days. So it's phenomenally expensive. It's dangerous. And, um, you know, it's not something that you can just blithely do overnight. <laughs> yeah. And it will be in rural communities in prime agricultural farmland. Like the, that's the only place with that kind of room to create these sort of facilities. Um, yeah. Also in the news, um, I wanted to ask you about this because you did a really great video. Again, telling people to calm down, but also taking the right tone amidst a tragedy. Uh, right now we see, as is always the case with any sort of wildfire, that the left is using the graves of the people who have died 
and the people who have suffered loss and tragedy to push their climate change agenda. And again, fires in in Hawaii, just like the fires in Alberta, like the fires in BC, like the fires in Quebec, the left is telling us that these are caused by climate change. So tell us what you found when you looked into the issue. Uh, well, it turns out that um, the Hawaiian islands, especially the Lahaina area, have been at serious risk of wildfire for a long time. And our uh, forestry wildfire consultant said actually he's surprised it hadn't happened until now. And uh, one thing that's happened is the islands used to have a lot of sugarcane and pineapple plantations. So these were all irrigated and tended. And over time, that industry has shut down. I think it's gone from about 80% to about 45% land use now or something like that. In its place has grown all of this invasive species of grass, which um, I've got a video I can send you of a fire in Oahu with the grass is about three, uh, three meters tall and then it dries. So, you know, people always think that the islands oh. are lush, tropical places. They are, but they also have a dry season and it depends on what side of the island you're on. So if you're on the drier side and you have all these lush grasses standing tall, when they dry, it's just like the best kindling ever. It's tremendous fuel load. And then if you have a fire start there and a wind, whoosh, it'll just run right through it. And you can see pictures on Google Maps where the grass grows right up to these communities. So unfortunately, you know, the grass lights on fire, the ember storm comes, it enters into houses. And the other thing our wildfire consultant said is that, you know, most things in homes are combustible, very combustible now, like they're different materials today. So a lot of these houses, unfortunately, burn from the inside out. Um, and the trees didn't burn so much. You know, people are saying, well, why didn't the trees burn? Because it was essentially a grass fire that just swept through. Um, you know, it wasn't like a slow burn where trees would then actually, after a time, catch on fire and burn down. It kind of went through all the combustibles and kept going. So uh, I, it's a terrible tragedy, and I'm sure that there will be many more people lost um, because you you know, it's very hard to escape and, and probably a lot of people simply suffocated. Yeah. I, I mean, anybody who lives on the prairies knows just how fast a grass fire can move. I mean, it is so fast. You, uh -huh. It's almost as though you can't get out of the way of it. And that seems to be sort of what happened in Hawaii. And it's, it, it's just terrible, especially if you're unaccustomed to experiencing that. Grass fires are a thing that happens on the prairies all the time. A spark from a train can mm -hmm. cause a grass fire that can burn for days and days, a cigarette butt out the window. If you're not, if you live in an area that has been a grass fire waiting to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, you really don't know what to do when it does. Mm -hmm. And you can look at our um, presentation, which is on YouTube, and I will also post the PowerPoint on our blog, but you can see that uh, for a long time, the wildfire people in Hawaii have been assessing the potential risks and, and dealing with other wildfires. There have been many other wildfires, but not combined with this kind of wind. So just a tremendous tragedy all around. 
It is, but uh, leave it to the environmentalists left to use a tragedy to their own ends. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you ab- about something that is uh, near and dear to my heart, and I think yours as well, and that is the ability to speak our minds on issues that we have carefully researched, to share our feelings, um, to share our findings, um, but it doesn't seem like that could be the case if uh, the left gets their way with some policies that are being led out of the United Nations. So why don't you tell us about what the the policies that are proposed uh, could mean for Canada, but also what they could mean for skeptics of official narratives like yourself, and I guess myself too. Uh, well, uh, people may not be aware that in June, just shortly after the uh, special interlocutor on um, missing children and unmarked graves, that's Kimberly Murray, just after her interim report came out, I think it was four days after, the Justice Department issued a um, an action directive on the United Nations Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples, or commonly known as UNDRIP. Um, UNDRIP was adopted, um, I think it was in 2021, not too sure, Uh, And um, Mm -hmm. in the directive, they want to align all laws in Canada with UNDRIP. So this could have extremely far-reaching consequences for everything in Canada. Now, as part of the special interlocutor's report, she declared that uh, people like myself who have uh, worked for many years with historical research. I worked uh, with Dr. Hugh Dempsey at the Glenbow Museum um, for um, three years. He was my research supervisor as I did a number of historical documentaries and I continued doing historical work for the rest of that decade and often consulted with him and the other people there. So what I'm saying is I come from a point of view of knowledge. Uh, The special interlocutor uh, would like to silence people like me and also the person who's in charge of the archives at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, Raymond Frogner. He would also like to silence me. Um, So uh, Kimberly Murray has sent to the UN, and you need to understand she's just a civil servant. She's not an elected official of any kind. She was supposed to report to the justice minister. She sent the UN um, special rapporteur on the rights, uh, the human rights of indigenous people. His name is Jose Francisco Calitze. She sent him a report accusing Canada of genocide. And uh, it's important to note that the day after Canada adopted UNDRIP, China accused Canada of genocide. So um, I don't see that there's evidence of genocide in Canada in terms of the Indian residential school issue. And I've written quite a few commentaries about it, even though I know that a lot of people hate me for doing that. But um, I can't remain silent. And I also think that there's a, you know, we're basically killing the spirit of our young people by creating this cloud of horror and genocide and not presenting 
the constructive and positive aspects of our history that I know about and that I put forward. So, you know, these things are all going to converge in September, and uh, people shouldn't take it lightly. Like, if Canada is accused of genocide by uh, um, Jose Francisco Calice, and if China has its way, think of the implications for that in terms of us as a member of the world of nations, a member of the G7, trying to do trade with certain countries. Uh, what kind of implications might there be for us? For instance, recall that when South Africa was accused of apartheid, there were huge embargoes. Um, you know, it made life very difficult for them. So, and, you know, I don't see anyone in our political culture saying anything about this. It's like people go, okay. In fact, all of our politicians on October the 27th, I think it was 2022, they all voted to declare Indian residential schools as genocide. All of our politicians did with no evidence and no discussion. So we basically accused ourselves of genocide. We have a, a civil servant handing over to an, a, a UN official documents that are unvetted and I believe very incorrect that uh, will put us in a very compromised position trying to argue our case. So. You know, I think it is, I think it's terrible uh, because Canadian politicians have put us on par with the likes of China and their Uyghur genocide, uh, the Khmer Rouge, the ISIS caliphate. Like, that's what they're saying we are when they yeah. throw these words around. And I, I think it's terrible. Yes, of course, bad things happened at residential schools. And the UN, by the way, is fully equipped to investigate genocide. They've done it before in other places. So perhaps before they declare us a genocidal state, send in a team and start doing some excavations. Because when they did excavate in Edmonton, they didn't find anything. And so I think that leads me to believe that that is perhaps why they're not excavating in British Columbia. Well, you know, in all the time that I worked in the Glenbow and all the archival material that I went through and all the hundreds of pioneers that I talked to and, and uh, descendants of people who signed Treaty 7 and descendants of Colonel McLeod, in all that time, I never saw or heard of any missing persons report about a child attending Indian residential schools. And you would think with 150,000 students over the course of 113 years, if people were enrolling their children in the school, which is what you had to do, and then their child disappeared, you'd think that they would write a report, they would file a complaint, that there would be documentation that since the child had been entered into the system, that there would be either documents missing about that child that would make you go, aha. Or there would be filed reports saying, look, we took our child to this school and they vanished on this date and we haven't seen them since. Open an inquiry. I have never seen any documents like that. So, I, I, you know, it would be extremely conspiratorial to think that all of these schools and all of these documents and all of these children, that somehow these kinds of things were nefariously hidden throughout this entire system. And in fact, where is that book? I'm just reading this. I'm just reading this fabulous book. 
called Four Years and Then Some, which is about this woman from Saskatchewan who went to work up at, at Klavik. And it's just a wonderful, heartwarming story. Like the kids at her school loved her. They adored her and she adored them. Um, you know, so you went, when you read things like that, uh, you go, wait a minute. Well, what's everybody talking about? And I think if the Liberals truly believed that Canada was a genocidal state for uh, the government's role in the residential schools, someone might call the cops on Jean Chrétien, being the last Indian Affairs Minister who signed off on the residential schools. But nobody has. If people, if the left truly believed that residential schools were the result of the actions of a genocidal state and a genocidaire named Jean Chrétien, go get him. He's still alive. But they don't, which leads me to believe how unserious they are about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing people have to realize is that the um, potential for uh, genocide um, judgment against Canada for the Indigenous people who are part of the land back movement, they see this as mm -hmm. the lever to literally get all the land back in Canada. Now, there are some people who say, no, no, we don't mean that. We just mean that, you know, we'll be sharing the land. And it's kind of like, well, that's what we're doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, because where does the $60 billion in compensation come from, if not from taxpayers who are working on the land of Canada and sharing that money in terms of compensation? So, um, you know, that I think that... Uh, the outrage that we've seen in downtown Winnipeg, you know, there have been a number of pretty rowdy demonstrations mm. um, with people chanting no pride in genocide and uh, the Mohawk warriors have been there and many people maybe have forgotten about what happened at Oka. Um, but most people probably remember that there was shutdown Canada a couple of years ago where Canada That's was right. shut down. All the roads and rail infrastructure were shut down for two months uh, by Indigenous activists who were outraged about residential schools uh, and the alleged genocide. Well, if there's no genocide, then there's no reason to do that. And if our objective is reconciliation, then let's sit down and reconcile. Let's talk. Um, before I let you go, Michelle, and again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I want to give you the opportunity to do two things. You have an event coming up <laughs> and, uh, I want you to promote people. I've been to your events. They are wonderful. The food's great. Um, it's, it's, you know, you'll find a room full of like-minded people, but also not like-minded people, but people who want to engage in civil discourse. So um, there's no ideological homogeneity happening there. Um, and please let us know how people can support the work that you do at Friends of Science, because I, and I say it every time you're on the show, you are up against the deepest of the deep green pockets um, and the government, um, the foreign-funded environmentalist movement, and you're just this little juggernaut of truth. So please tell us how um, we can get involved in supporting Friends of Science.
It's great. Thank you. Well, you can go to our website, www.friendsofscience.org, and right there you'll see the announcement for our upcoming event. It's going to be on October the 17th this year at the Red and White Club in Calgary. Um, it's a buffet dinner and then our two speakers. The name of the event is Break Free from Climate Tyranny, Evidence Over Ideology. Our two speakers will be Robert Lyman, who will be asking the question, when will climate policy hit the wall? Robert was here in 2017, and at that time he asked the question, can Canada survive climate change policy? At the time he thought we could. Now he's not so sure. Um, our second speaker will be more on the science and um, energy issues. That will be Dr. Ian Clark, Professor Emeritus from the University of Ottawa. And he'll be talking on uh, climate and net zero, a reality check. So it's really a great evening. We have the buffet dinner, people mingle, there's a cash bar. We have some tables with bling. Then we have our first speaker. Then we have a break, cash bar, bling, um, mingle, desserts, it's coffee. It's worth every penny. And then our second speaker. And then we have <laughs> Michelle, Q&A at so the end. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. So, and we'll talk very, very uh, as you said, um, probably the half the people who come are our members. Hysteria, and about half the people so who have come the past few years are going back not members, not interested in climate change per se. But, you know, they realize that all these policies are really infringing on their Well, we've come to the portion of the show where I invite your viewer feedback because without viewer feedback, there really is no rebel news because if you don't like what we're doing here, you won't support us. And without your support, we don't exist because we'll never take a penny from Justin Trudeau or any level of government because how could we ever hold them to account if we relied on them to keep the lights on? But because I invite your viewer feedback, I have to give you my email address right now. It's Sheila at rebelnews.com. Put gun show letters in the subject line so I know you're talking about the show. Um, and it's also becomes easier for me to find. But don't hesitate to leave a comment uh, wherever you might be watching us. For example, if you're watching the free version of the show, thank you for sitting through the ads. Um, you can find that on Rumble or YouTube sort of towards the weekend. So leave me a comment there. Sometimes I go poking over there. Um, but today the letter comes from the email and it comes from Eric in Saskatoon. It says his wife and he are huge fans and longtime supporters. Well, that's great. Let's keep going. I have a suggestion for you, Re the Gun Show. Have you reached out to Tom McDonald to invite him to come on as a guest? Yes, actually, I have. Um, and we had a connection to Tom McDonald um through um Someone who used to work for us here at Rebel News, um, Matt Brevner, also a musician, Canadian musician, who we were lucky enough, enough to have working for us as a very talented videographer. But he was a Juno Award nominated musician and someone in the freedom music space. So he had a connection with Tom McDonald. However, 
Tom McDonald did not come on my show, obviously. Um, but let's keep you fill me in about who Tom McDonald is. And I already know, but maybe the viewers don't. So let's keep reading. In addition to his amazing music, which I'm sure you've heard about, including his latest masterpiece, Your America. I think there are so many things you guys could talk about to make it an amazing episode. He's from your neck of the woods, born and raised in St. Albert and Edmonton. That is true. He has experience working in the oil sands. Also true. And uh, I know a little thing or two about the oil and gas industry. And he was a pro wrestler. And yes, I do. (laughs) I do very much enjoy pro wrestling. I know he's pretty selective with which media outlets he does interviews with. He's a natural skeptic who can blame him. I do know that he has been on Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, Newsmax, and OAN. With Rebel being the largest independent news organization in Canada, his home, I think your reach might appeal to him. Thanks for considering. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Eric. AKA the first guy wearing the Menzoid t-shirt. Oh, I know exactly who you are. And I met you in Regina at an event we held there after Patrick Moore was canceled from his speaking talk there. We replatformed Patrick Moore um, so that um, his voice could be heard. And we did it in the grandest of fashion. Um, yes, I have reached out to Tom McDonald in the past. Um, but as you say, he's a skeptic, um, doesn't do a lot of interviews. And um, so he just uh, politely declined. No hard feelings or anything. I understand why he doesn't do media interviews. He really doesn't have to. Right. Like he's like Trump. He just goes directly to the people with um his YouTube channel and his other platforms. And he just speaks to the people directly. He doesn't need to speak to them through me. Totally get it. Totally get it. And good for him. Um, So I hope that answers your question. I have reached out to Tom. I'm a fan of Tom. We would have a lot to talk about given uh, my particular interests and background, but uh, he's just uh, doing his own thing. And I admire that. Well, friends, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to my producers behind the scenes who put the show together so that it's there for you to watch whenever you're ready to watch it. And thanks to all the team in Toronto and around the world to make sure the show is published for you to watch it because that that's the thing we have to do around here. I'll see everybody back here in the same time in the spa- same space next week. And uh, as I always say every single week, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs>